welcome to Aviation Eye by Aviation Zorro. I'm delighted to be chatting with counseling psychologist. Um, I'll throw it all in, psychotherapist and author of a number of best-selling books, including her latest book titled Living with Long-Term Effects of Cancer, Acknowledging Trauma and Other Emotional Challenges, Dr. Cordelia Galvet. A very good afternoon, Dr. Cordelia. How are you getting on today? Thanks, David. Um, I'm uh, as well as can be expected as somebody who, as well as being a mental health professional, suffers quite a lot of long-term effects myself. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting upright, David, is the best I can do. That's the best, that's the best I've heard all day. So we're, we're, our listeners <laughs> want to know where people are, where their guests are. So where yeah. are you right now? What location are well, you on the, on the yeah, um, I live in London, have done since the um, mid-60s. Um, yeah, has its ups, has its downs, but this is where I live. Wonderful. Well, what we'll do is we'll crack on then. So welcome to the show. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Okay. Um, well, I was born in Liverpool in 1955 um, in as many of, you, of your listeners will know north of england and then i moved south with my family um my parents and my brother when i was 12 and i really hated the thought of it in fact i refused to go um, <laughs> but, in the, end, but in, in the end i did hit london in the swinging 60s which was quite cool actually so you have um, some good stories to tell nice. have you I have some good stories, but oh, then I have some good stories to tell about Liverpool and the Beatles and everything. In oh, the, wow. Okay. Well, in, we'll get into you know, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was too, I was a really too small a girl to go to the cavern, you know, where, where the Beatles used to play. And I, I used to see the big girls and boys going down there and get really jealous. Anyway, <laughs> so moved to, Lo moved to London. Um, as I say, that's where I have mostly lived for... Um, I'm I'm 65 now, so I'm I'm getting on a bit. And, Not at um, all. I have lived in France. I, no, yeah, well, I have lived in France as well. Um, I do speak some French. Uh, I had a mother who spoke um, quite a lot of French to me. She wasn't French, but she thought she was. Um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> that's the kind of She's family confused. I grew up in. Okay. Well, no, no, well, I mean, I just, I mean, in a sense, it's quite a good strategy. You don't, you know, you just take on the persona of a French woman and, you know, there we go. <laughs> yeah, go for it. She taught French and everything. So, so um, how did I get into this job? Well, I, interestingly, I followed in my mother's footsteps and uh, my first degree was, um, well, part of it was French and I went on to taught French. So I taught French in a secondary school for a lot of years and then did um, advisory work in, I, I got in the end really bored uh, with the French teaching. I love the kids, but um, I just got really bored with it. So um, many years ago now, I retrained and on top of teaching French, I taught English as a second language. And then I went and did advisory work in that field. Um, that all got sort of um, complicated by the fact that I got really ill and not not with cancer at that point but just really ill with some viral infection i couldn't throw off and in those days it was called me i think subsequently um it's clear that my i had some immune um system uh malfunctions and anyway it took me two years to lying on my back basically to recover from that so 
cut long story short, the, the teaching ended and in a weird kind of way, it gave me an opportunity to go back to and to focus on what I really liked about the teaching, which was um, the uh, pastoral work with the kids, you know, just non-explicit counselling relationships. And after two years of lying on my back, it, it was really, I mean, I think back on it, it was a long time ago now, but I actually used to kind of limp my way to the first counselling course that I did. With a background in psychology, I had studied some psychology. I then moved in those days, there was no counselling psychology, although I am a counselling psychologist. Now, there was no counselling psychology that I was aware of. And so I started doing a counselling, just a straight counselling, basic course um, at City University. And then I went on and got on to, I was really happy to have, got on to a very popular counselling course at the University of East London years ago and that was the start of it and that was back in the very uh, very very early 90s and um, I love I really love that counselling course I just sort of found myself I started to you know I, fortunately over time physically I was getting a bit stronger it was still a real struggle but it was and it was only one day a week but anyway cut long story short I ended up finishing that diploma and then going on doing an MA in counseling psychology uh, and psychotherapy and uh, then uh, <laughs> went on and did a doctorate in well effectively um quality of service for lesbian and bisexual um women was it yeah women in um therapy oh wow uh, so can i ask you then i mean we were chatting today about living with the long long-term effects of cancer um hmm. can you explain in your circumstance or how, how you felt when you found out that you had cancer Oh, God. Um, it was horrendous. I mean, I don't think, you know, even <clears throat> even now, whenever I, you know, for example, I look, I'm watching television and the film was made in 2004. All I ever think about is, oh, God, that's when I was diagnosed with cancer. And, and it was a particularly bad experience I had, I have to say, where nobody actually told me that I had cancer. I was, I was, um, there were very small, well, at the, at the time, they thought it was only one tumour. In fact, it turned out later, several months later, that my instinct that there was a, um, a small tumour in the other breast was right. But it was a whole, I wrote about that in my first book, The Psychological Impact of Breast Cancer, about the misdiagnosis um, or the lack of diagnosis of a second cancer. The, it was, in fact, a bilateral event. But... Um, God, it's well because nobody told me, and there was just a um, almost a conspiracy of silence in the particular institution that I was diagnosed in, except I wasn't diagnosed. I ended up having to wait. I could see people being told what there is. I was in a room with other people, with other women. They were all called in and told, presumably, that their scans were fine. And I was left till the last moment. And then I was called in and I had to have another ultrasound. And the woman was kind of looking around. And I mean, the radiologist, the woman who was doing the scan. And I said, look, what's, what's going on? And I said, have I got cancer? because I just because of the way she was behaving she was so kind of sheepish and so awkward and she said you know she said to me she said this is how I found out I had cancer at least it's not lung cancer 
Oh, at wow. least it's not lung cancer. But I, I remember just freezing inside. I wanted to know. I just, but I just, I mean, the shock, numb, numb shock. And then I spent the next hour after that scan, literally being, did I have a biopsy on that? I think, I think actually I then went upstairs in about an hour. I insisted on talking to someone and not just going away and waiting for the next thing. Um, I think maybe, maybe that woman did a, the radiologist did a biopsy, but you can hear, I can't really remember. Yeah. I can't, I was just in numb shock, but I do remember talking to a, um, a surgeon that same day um, in a great big office and saying, look, I just need to know, have I got cancer? And yeah, Again, she wouldn't say, you've definitely got cancer. She said, yes, I think. I, I remember her saying, you know, she was the one who did the biopsy. And I remember her saying, yeah, the chances are you have. But it was, it was done in a, a very kind of extreme way. And they knew, they actually knew that I had cancer because when I, I, I insisted on seeing a, you know, some kind of support person. And I said, look, you know, if you look on this piece of paper, it says, and I have a piece of paper in front of me, it said something like grade five chance of cancer. They kind of rated the chances of cancer, not the actual grade of the cancer, because they didn't know that at that point. Um, and yeah, nobody would actually talk to me honestly and directly. And uh, So how long did it take then for you to actually officially find out? that it was breast cancer i had to there was something like 48 no it wasn't longer than that it was more it was more like three days or something and then i had to phone and i phoned and spoke to a secretary and i said Look, i just need to talk to somebody who will tell me because the bio or maybe it was longer than that i can't remember it seemed like an eternity and it was you know it is an eternity when you just and i just wanted to know and it was literally yeah i think it was a few days later and eventually somebody said yes you have got cancer um and it, in a weird kind of way it was a relief to know it because right. i was obviously if there's a, an element of doubt about it i mean there was no as far as i'm aware there was no element of doubt even the first time they saw it because it looked really like cancer on the um on the ultrasound you know so it was just really badly hand, handled which helped nothing i think if you've got somebody who is compassionate caring more psychologically aware than those people were um do you think the nurse when she said to you that at least it's not lung cancer do you think she was trying to make herself sound better by saying that that, that was the radiologist i think she was sorry yes i think probably in a cack-handed way she was saying well yes you have got cancer but it's, you know, it's not the worst kind of cancer. It's breast cancer rather than lung cancer. And, you know, what went through my head as a psychologist at that point is, oh, has she got a parent with lung cancer? And, you know, she's going through her own ordeal there and, you know, projecting it onto me. Uh, or, you know, the generous version is, yeah, she was trying to soften the blow or something. I really don't know. But I was, I mean, I'm still furious about it when i think about it because it was just so badly handled you know did you have any support i mean did you have for those three days before you got the uh, mm. the, the, mm. the answer of breast it might cancer, be longer actually it might it might have been a week i honestly can't remember yeah and did you have did anybody, i have any support did you have any support to say like you know don't worry we'll get through this or was it a case of 
you were kind of up uh, the wall waiting to find out the news because then you said that once you found out you were kind of relieved yeah i was because at least i knew then rather than hoping you know so long as there's always hope isn't there that that it isn't if if you you're not 100 percent certain i mean i knew because it was so clear from the way i was treated and everything that they were 99.9 percent sure it was cancer you know um i had obviously support from my pet from my um partner uh but no nobody from that particular institution or anybody medical or the gps you know no nobody no um i think i think my partner used matt millen at that point you know matt millen cancer care um as it's now called i think um and they were helpful and good but uh, yeah that was it really I just all I really wanted to do is just find out, you know. And yeah. So after you got the news that you have breast cancer, mm-hmm. uh, how long did it mm-hmm. take for the treatment to begin? Well, I was because we were teachers. We um, um, were on. A, we actually had private insurance because I, even though it goes against my political sort of beliefs i i was in hospital for quite a long time with a gynecological problem and um even before several years before i got cancer and i remember coming out and saying to my partner i'm never going through that again that was awful we've got to try and get private insurance so so we did so i was able to activate that um and so the treatment was much quicker than it would have been if i'd been on the nhs and in fact you know i was thinking this the other day and this is i know there are people who say and i'm a big supporter of the nhs um uh it's grossly underfunded um in in england and uh um i you know it's, it's an awful thing to say but I, I pushed and pushed and pushed with the GP I said look I think I've got cancer this was even before you know way before I went to get it diagnosed and I, my instinct told me there was something there and she kept saying no you're too young you're too young I was 48 for goodness sake I wasn't too young I'd also reported in the hospital the local NHS hospital that I thought I should have a mammogram. It was just my instinct, really, and nobody paid much attention, and I had to push and push and push and push. So I think it's probably true to say that if I hadn't pushed and pushed and pushed, I might well be dead by now. Um, That's a frightening So if I had been treated... Well, it it is, because the first cancer was very, very small, but it was incredibly aggressive. And, uh, you know, as I said, I had one in the other breast that hadn't been... that was only found even on the private um quite a long quite a number of months later on so yeah i mean i don't know how long it would have taken on the nhs but it was a couple of weeks and then i had the um the operation i mean i'm not in any way saying that i think treatment is better privately but you certainly do have access to things more quickly and um, was the treatment uh, like as a radiotherapy chemotherapy yeah um, yeah but, uh, these days i think i would have had to have had chemotherapy well that that would have been suggested but in those days um it was just radiotherapy so i had um radiotherapy to the well i have obviously had um opera an operation wide local excision on the right hand side um some lymph nodes removed um 
and then because nothing had spread even though it was an aggressive cancer um, uh, because it was such a tiny tumor um, and th this is where instinct comes into it I think I just kept sort of pushing and pushing and pushing if I'd waited you know longer the thing would have been bigger and obviously my life would have been more at risk I guess um so it was just radiotherapy but actually for me radiotherapy was really really hard I am um, as some people sail through radiotherapy um but for me I got really ill systemically I had horrible burns um I had a really bad time with it and I think that the reason I have stuck with the, the subject of the long-term effects of cancer. And do you want me to talk about what I've written about in the book at this point? Yeah, no, sure. No, you, you, you work away, whatever you feel is appropriate. Well, I mean, one of the things that I started to realise relatively early on in the, you know, it's now 16 years since I was first diagnosed and, um, is that some of these effects, you know, we're told, or I was told repeatedly, oh, no, no, this will get better over time. And in fact, it's got worse. Some things have stayed the same and some things have got worse and some things have appeared. And, you know, behind closed doors, um, I have been, it's been suggested that, that radiotherapy could well have caused these things. Had I had choices, you know, if I were diagnosed right now, with a similar kind of situation, I think I would have been much more. I would be much more cautious about how much radiotherapy I agreed to. And in fact, there was something in the news the other day, wasn't there, about how there's it one treatment of <coughs> radiotherapy inside the body is as effective as six weeks outside. But I ended up not being able to do the whole six weeks because I was just so burnt. So the oncologist in question just um, she actually. Uh, so gave me a boost to the scar area which might or might not have been a good thing um but yeah it was a real ordeal for me and then and then um unfortunately what happened was my instinct kept telling me that there was something in the other breast and i was just fobbed off repeatedly no 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 you just think you're growing something but you're not um and cut, should, should, should i tell you the story of what happened with the second diagnosis Oh yeah, go ahead. Because yeah. it's it's one for you know anybody listening is it's scary, but I you know even within the cancer world, you know, with a load of specialists, with a specialist oncologist, with a you know a specialist team around <coughs> that I had some access to, um, it was hard for those people to believe that there might be cancer in my other breast because I'd been screened, hadn't I? You know, yes. but unfortunately they hadn't ultrasounded my left breast. And at the time I didn't know to insist on that. That wasn't the practice um, of the surgeon, the particular, the, f the first surgeon I had actually changed subsequently when a second cancer was diagnosed in the other breast but it happened because I went for a mammogram and a mammogram of that breast and that looked you know essentially all right and so the radiologist said to me oh that's fine you know you haven't got anything and I said look I'm sure I have would you please ultrasound this breast I can point to where I think it is 
which is just huge. I mean, that human beings can do this is quite incredible to me, but it was such a strong instinct. And so she did. Fortunately, she did. She didn't, she didn't just say, no, I'm not going to do it. She did. And there it was, large as life, 1.5. Well, actually, looked a bit smaller on the ultrasound um, on the screen, but it was quite clearly a cancer, another cancer. So, so reaction, I then went through. This eh? is interesting now. What reaction? This is interesting now. So what reaction? So you're, you're giving these specialists or doctors hints, mm-hmm. you know, that something's not right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden yep, yep. they do the test and then they find that something is not right. What, what, what's, the, what's their reaction then? I mean, what did they say? Yeah, <laughs> interesting one. Well, the, radi- the, radiologist, the radiologist who had thought there was nothing there was stunned. I mean, I just think she was, she was just on kind of autopilot. <laughs> I'm right. talking to aviation. <laughs> she, just, she just was kind of, I don't think she knew what to think or anything. I have no idea whether she learned from that experience or whatever, but I certainly know that the oncologist in question did because I actually felt a bit sorry for that woman because, you know, you have to rely on your colleagues to do a decent job. When, when you're the oncologist and the surgeon refers people on for the next bit of treatment you have to believe that they've died they've their diagnoses are correct don't you yeah sure and unfortunately that wasn't the case and so i mean she was pretty stunned and i think you know give her credit for i I mean i i don't know because it's all unfortunately there's such a lot of sort of closing ranks and sort of doors shut in your face nobody openly explained anything to me but reading between the lines I I think she probably um wrapped a few knuckles or something similar um certainly raised that as a hang on you know she should have been ultrasounded to begin with or I honestly don't know but you know I would imagine if that would be me in that situation I would have not been very happy and what it does is the long-term effects of that as well, I suppose, is that the doubt then sets in because in your situation where you've been diagnosed with breast cancer on one side and then yeah. you then have concerns with the other side, which they haven't picked up mm-hmm. and you're trying to, you know, you think, oh, there's yeah. something wrong here and then they do pick it up. So when you go back to them again with another concern, you're kind of, oh, well, how do I know I'm getting the factual you know, I'm getting the right information here. So it must be very hard. It must be very, very hard on you, I have to say. You're right, David, you're right. And, and I think that the impact that's had on me personally, and I know I'm not alone in this because I've talked to a lot of people over the years now um, who've been diagnosed with cancer and had follow-up treatment and all the rest of it. And I think what it leaves us with is a, a difficulty trusting, yeah, difficulty trusting anyone and feeling it within medicine. And, and feeling as though I mean certainly I feel as though I have to take charge you know I, I can't and it extends to other things that are wrong with me now I, I, I have to be vigilant because if I'm not vigilant <coughs> well quite frankly if I hadn't been vigilant to begin with I'd be dead I'm, I'm sure of that I don't I wouldn't have survived that first cancer because it was so aggressive you know so it's it's made me hyper vigilant which is very uncomfortable and i think well i i I decided for this living with the long-term effects of cancer that i needed to devote a whole chapter to not just fear of recurrence but dread of recurrence because that is what i know 
it feels like um it's not just me there's a lot of other people we don't but we don't talk about it openly because it sounds i mean it's true of, of, in western society you don't i mean it, it, it's shifting a bit i hope in some ways but extreme emotion you can you can and i write about this in the book as well and in other stuff i've written extreme emotion you can express it to a certain degree but if you if you express it beyond a certain degree you start to get defined and pathologized and called abnormal and people are very wary therefore of saying i dread recurrence we always mute or we often mute I mean, you, you notice this quite often. It always makes me laugh when you say, oh, I'm a bit terrified. No, you, can, you can't be a bit terrified. <laughs> you're either terrified or you're not. <laughs> People, we do, I mean, I do it myself. I find myself saying, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I, can't, I can't think, but, you know, a bit terrified is one that springs to mind. And um, it always makes me laugh now, especially when I do it. Uh, I try not to do it. But um, that doesn't help anything, I don't think. Yeah. When, when, when you, you, know, you know when you see the videos of the clips of uh, cancer patients when they ring the bell in the hospital? Those, those cancer, cancer patients I've seen, I've known even through friends and colleagues where okay. on the final day of treatment that they might, there's a bell oh, in the right. hospital oh. and they ring the Give bell. Give me strength. So is Give that just strength. like a motivational yeah. tool to say, you know, you're finished with your treatment? or <laughs> There may be some cancers where the medics can confidently say this cancer will never return but for yes. most people that is not going to be the case for example breast cancer can come back at any point you know 30 years later you know hopefully the chances of it get less as you sort of you know live on and you have fewer recurrences but the reality is most of these cancers can come back. So I don't think any medic these days um, would dare say to a patient, you are cancer-free. The best they'll say is, your cancer's stable or there's no evidence of your cancer in your body at this point. Any, any, I mean, I'd be amazed if any doctor actually said that. So I've never seen those bells. Right. And, and I, think they're, I think they're somewhat misleading because you, I've heard stories and, and talked to people who've been told you know, your cancer free or whatever. And then they felt really betrayed when their cancers come back, you know, because yes. historically, I mean, obviously in the past, that is what people were told, but I think things have shifted in that respect. Never, never heard of the bell. Yeah. My God, never heard. Of, I mean, psychologically wonderful. If, if look, when you've been diagnosed with cancer and you've gone through all the horrendous treatment, of course, everybody wants to be cancer free. Everybody wants to move beyond it and get over it and get on with their lives and go back to normal. And what I have learned is that it's a struggle and, and you can't go back to normal. E even if you have a better version of cancer where you don't suffer so much from, you know, the treatments long term, shorter term, longer term, you're still going to be coping with the fear of recurrence and you know it's interesting there's a point when in there's a chapter i've got where um which is all interviews with two surgeons one oncologist and one um uh, nurse practitioner um and i remember one of the surgeons says you know we were told in medical school that you wouldn't have pain after breast cancer surgery well you know or very few people women would but actually women and the odd man obviously sadly um but uh in reality 
all of the all of the women I see after surgery, they have pain, you know, they all have pain. So he, he admitted that, you know, to me. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an eye opener. I mean, you, you, regards to, to your book, I mean, we'll touch a bit more on that later on, but um, the long term effects then, because we always think Obviously, can I just clarify something? Obviously, you can have lots of long term effects like me and hopefully not have cancer in your body i mean there's there's a difference between there are lots of people who were diagnosed with cancer and are still living with cancer and and you know that's in many ways that's a very different situation from my situation where i suffer the long-term effects of cancer but at this point as far as i'm aware i can't guarantee it i don't have any more cancer at this point i might have and not know about it but as far as i'm aware psychologically that's got to be different hasn't it but but i would say in my situation there are enough days in my life when i don't feel my life is worth living because of all the problems i've got right whereas you you know every now and again you come across somebody who's got a recurrence of cancer and they say that their quality of life is good and they can live for years and years and years i mean those are the two polar you know i mean it's not really for me to say but yeah i mean it's so what i'm saying is there's a difference there obviously so and out of out of respect for people who are living with a with with cancer still in their body i want to say that you know what what about then we talk about say relationships so we 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 can see when i say see but the individual that has cancer right we can see they're getting treatment we can see they may not be very well and we can see the after effects of possibly having radiotherapy, chemotherapy, or any other treatment. But what about, say, their their partners or the children, the family, or work life? How does how does it affect that? Even coming from your side, and from mm. the partner side, how how can that be affected with children involved? Your husband, your oh my goodness, wives. Well, I mean, it, it, you know, I've, ri- I've written a whole chapter on relationships. I mean, a very specific chapter. And I've written in previous books um, about relationships as well in previous articles. I think inevitably, um, if you go, th- you have a diagnosis of cancer and cancer treatment, uh, you're not going to be the same. <laughs> it's a rare person who has the, ener- the same amount of energy your world view is quite likely to have changed relationships with partners get put under a lot of pressure quite often i mean sometimes you know they end up being better but quite often not on the basis of what i know um children obviously it's interesting with children because people have different attitudes to how to approach children about the fact that they've got cancer or you know their partner has cancer um uh i mean i have i do have particular views on that but um you know i've written a little bit about that in this book on living with the long-term effects of cancer but there are other people who are better qualified to deal with that than me for for you as well i mean how how has it you have mentioned some of the, the the effects that it's had on yourself but um now at this moment in time i mean how how is it still affecting you 
oh goodness again i've written about quite a lot of this in living with the long-term effects of cancer i, I think on a, on a daily basis i think i you know i didn't mention that i also had four years of adjuvant chemotherapy after the radiotherapy and a combination of the two radiotherapies that i have the two six-week courses plus this four years plus the surgery um has had a huge effect on my body i mean i just mobility wise i don't have the same anything like the mobility that i had i mean i appreciate i'm 65 and i might have lost some of it anyway but you know i i have loads of pain i developed inflammatory conditions that i have been told could very easily be as a result of the treatments i had so i have a, a combination of things like bursitis which quite often comes up as something that people who've had cancer treatments talk about um i've got uh things like tendonitis i've got supposedly fibromyalgia i don't really know what that is a whole you you name it i've got it and there are days when many days actually when i'm limping around which is you know even basic things like cooking i have quite a lot of difficulty in these these days because my partner has dementia i end up having to do just a disproportionate amount of of stuff and i really struggle and there are there are days when i will quite happily admit that i'm just kind of screaming and crying and just i can't deal with this and I, in fact i've been going through my own process recently about how i've just got to get somebody in to help because which is difficult because you know i my my ability to earn money has been lessened by the fact that i uh you know i can't work as much uh, which is miserable because I really enjoy my work. Uh, but there's a limit to how much I can do and just do everything else. And, and you know, I had to give up face-to-face -face work because, you know, actually being in the room with someone, obviously it's difficult at the moment because of COVID-19, but because of dizziness, I have dizziness constantly. I mean, I think that just is so hard to live with these, these kind of issues, you know. Um, I have back-to-back, urinary tract infections the first one started during the first radiotherapy the dizziness and the um, uti the urinary tract infection the first time i had ever had one was during that first radiotherapy and they've just got worse over time so i now have these like i say back-to-back -back ones so i have them all the time and they don't go away and i've ended up in hospital with sepsis on several occasions because of it again I'm, it's interesting in um, that same chapter I was talking about where I've interviewed doctors, the gynecologist says that he notices in women who were treated for breast cancer, this particular uh, syndrome of inflam inflammation that causes things like um, urinary tract infections. So, I mean, it's a very under-researched, under-recognized area. So I'm, I'm kind of limping through with all these infections and um, all these musculoskeletal problems, and they affect me on every level in every way, you know? Do, do and, and other things. I mean, I got osteoporosis, of course, as a result of the treatment. And, you know, I've had quite a few broken bones. And oh, it's, just, it's a nightmare. For me personally, um, I would certainly, for me personally, if I had, you know, that, that if I had the choice, if I, if I could go back and, and knowing what I know now, I think I would refuse some of the treatment for me personally, you know. Do, do you get sick of the association with cancer? Do you know the way, you know the way when mm. you might walk down the road and a friend will say, oh, there's John or Mary over there or 
Philip and he has cancer, he's had cancer. Do you get tired no. of that? No, I've used, I use it as a badge of honour now because I, I suppose I've got no choice, have I? Because I'm so associated. I, I've chosen to speak out. I have chosen to go back in wherever it was, 2005, when I wrote the first article on this and I moved from, I just moved my area of focus for writing it wasn't I wasn't writing before and having stuff published but this is this is what I've written about mostly for quite a lot of years now so I can't get away from it really and I I suppose it's just define it, it, it doesn't define who I am but it's part of who I am I, I've taken it on I mean I, I do remember a couple of medics saying to me oh yeah you need to move you know just forget cancer as though you, you can't forget it anyway nobody's had a diagnosis of cancer it's ever going to forget that they've had it and people often say well I don't want it to define me I don't want people to associate me with it but the reality is unless you keep it all to yourself you're always going to be associated with it because people are still frightened of cancer and understandably so even though so many people survive cancer um, and probably what we've got increased well I think I'm sure this is why I've written living with the long-term effects of cancer we've got um, an epidemic of people with long-term varying degrees of long-term effects but you know a chronic condition as a result of cancer diagnosis and treatments um, even though people live on for years like that limping through we're still mega frightened of cancer and think of it as a death sentence and obviously it, <laughs> it, it often enough is so it's it's a reasonable rational kind of fear but yeah I don't believe if you tell somebody you've had cancer that's my personal opinion they're always going to remember it and you know here, here's a thing I, I don't know whether any of your listeners who who've had cancer can relate to this but it's still the case you know the my own even my own family some of my own family members um and um other people I know they know I've had cancer and they won't share a plate of food with me okay do they say why well, I did ask one person why, and she said, oh, well, you know, you know, you can catch cancer from food. And I said, well, number one, I'm not sure I've still got it in my body, but, you know, where's your evidence you can catch it from? I mean, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, some cancers have come from viruses, don't, don't they? So, I mean, in a way, I... <laughs> yeah, one of my family members I went to stay with, and, and this person actually... Um, I started eating food from, you know, we were sharing a plate and, and I remember her snatching the food away as, you know, get off, you know. And, uh, yeah, there we go. Is, is, it just, is it just ignorance? I don't mean ignorant people, but just not, they're not educated and yeah, but understanding I mean, what it is. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I guess it's just it, it, well, it, it, it's 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 terror, isn't it? It's terror of getting it, I suppose. You know. I, I think you mentioning the badge of honor will bring a lot of warmth and comfort to listeners. I think it's a mm. uh, it's a very yeah, nice badge of way honor. of putting it. I think it's it's uh, mm. yeah, I think it'll bring a lot of comfort and warmth to uh, to listeners. I imagine myself wearing a medal. <laughs> yes, a big. A big it is a badge, a badge saying, not a badge. Saying, I have had cancer and I'm proud of it. But just you know, it's yes, it's part of who I am now. Of course, it is. And anybody who says it shouldn't be, well, 
you know, just try it. You know, it's, it's, you might you might as well because. I don't know. I'm, sh- I'm well. I, I mean, I have spoken to people who don't, who who have criticised me and said, "Well, you know, you allow it to define you." And I said, "Well, it's not so much that it defines me. It's not all of who I am." But it, it, it's it's like anything. You have a child that you know that that child. Def- you know, you become a parent. Therefore, that defines who you are. You know, you're never the same again. You know, all these huge. You, your mother dies. You know, my mother died eleven years ago. I'm. <sighs> I wear a badge of honor in relation to that in some ways, you know, every, every huge life event that's terribly hard to, to live with day in, day out. And I mean, I would say the same about bereavement. You can't just get over bereavement, you know, the, the, the life I'm living at the moment where there's this is awful grief of watching my partner of 40 years sort of decaying in front of my eyes you know i mean that's another one yeah all these things make up who we are um i suppose the difference with cancer is obviously cancer has threatened my life directly and there is a different i mean maybe badge of honor is is something that i that sort of trips off my tongue more easily over that than these other other things i'm mentioning but you know do you see what i'm saying i mean there's a connection as well maybe yeah, but what I find interesting as well is that these people uh, that are saying to you um, when you've actually had cancer or you experienced mm-hmm. cancer, have they had cancer before? Uh, I assume not. Um, so they're but, but there a great are position people, to tell yeah. you to get on with it. Yeah, it's but, interesting. But, but hang on. <laughs> Hang on, I have had that from people who've had a diagnosis of cancer who criticised me and said, look, you're just sort of making, you know, you make a meal, making a meal of it, really. I mean, you can get over it, you can get beyond it. You know, you, you're not helping yourself move on through it by focusing on it all the time with your writing and whatever. And I said, well, somebody's got to do it, you know. And and I know that it brings a lot of comfort um, to to people i mean the number of communiques i've had over the years and people saying i mean i remember the first time i've written about this in the book actually the first time i I was really worried as a mental health profession it's so easy to get you know the dual perspective when you start to talk from personal experience as the woman who's had cancer as well as the psychologist it's a very difficult path to tread and I've been criticised for that as well um, by colleagues who said you can't be both. Um, I mean, that's by colleagues in I'm mean, talking about, say, the wider healthcare field, say, for example. You know, if I've spoken at an event or something, which I, you know, do a lot less these days, but I, um, you know, you can't speak from the dual perspective because if you speak from the dual perspective, you're not going to be taken seriously. You've either got to be the patient, patient, or you've got to be the psychologist. And I said, well, why? Why do I have to speak from just one perspective? Surely, my the, the the way forward is for me to integrate all of that and to see what what comes out of that for for the betterment of you know care of people going through cancer for example living through cancer because i realized the thing that i realized from the other side of the fence was oh my god i used to support people with cancer as a psychologist and i thought i knew well enough what they were going through and in fact, 
I was pretty horrified when I started to go through it myself and, and started to realize that I had diddly squat understanding and and the people I'd been supporting had been very sort of tolerant of me and very nice and you know I kind of wish they hadn't in a way um and so but I was just embarrassed and and that's that's why I started on this whole journey for want of a better word of of starting to write about the mismatch between what I thought was the case and what is actually the case you know well, I think it's done in a great terms job. Of, I think it's it's um you. you're you, you know you've mm. you're here now talking about this, which will open up other doors mm. for other people because mm. Mm. You, I you, hope you know, so. I mean, I, I think you mentioned there with regards to you know some of the professionals in your field are saying you can you got to be one side or the other. Um, no, you, know, you have a, you have a better perspective because you're fully trained in one area uh-huh. and you're actually yeah. going through you're actually going through this awful. Uh, disease in another side so you're actually you're, you're the first person to actually talk to about this so um ah well you know it's not much talked about and that's why i wrote this you know living with a long-term effects of cancer because from the dual perspective because i really really want um people to take on more the the importance of what just accepting that long-term effects of cancer exist and that that's not a criticism of anyone in particular it's just the way it is and if you deny once people have had cancer and they've got through all the treatment if you deny that there's there are difficulties or they there can easily be difficulties from then on uh you know for the rest of those people's lives or you know maybe shorter term if they're lucky um then you are doing those people a huge disservice. And, and worse than that, psychologically, um, you are potentially catapulting them into very, very extreme states of, di- of, of, of distress, you know? And, and I was just about to say that the, one of the things that woke me up to this was because I had been really struggling. Oh God, am I going to start talking about what I'm going through because I'm, realizing that i have been told that i shouldn't be anxious anymore after a year i should be over it but that's not the reality of how i'm feeling or what's going on and i was picking up some of the things from other people i was talking to and yet nobody was talking about this and then i wrote this little piece for what was then something like breast cancer care news the charity and i thought oh my god i'm gonna get really you know criticized um by people in healthcare and not validated at all and what happened was the exact reverse and what I got was oh thank god you as a psychologist are saying that you know um you're still terrified of recurrence I am too but I don't feel I can talk about it you know and a lot of people don't so so I'm that's hopefully what I'm doing David I'm actually giving people I'm encouraging people to have a it's all right to have a voice all right you know i'm having a voice and shouting about it and some people choose not to and fair enough and it's a risky path to tread in some ways but i think more of us need to try and talk about it yeah i, I totally agree so we well, you know, pl- plug the book there a little bit so where can you buy the book thank you um well it's on amazon it's on amazon.co.uk so you can you can get it through um it's 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 easily gettable through there um you can also get it through jessica kingsley 
publications, um, my publishers, JKP. Um, uh, hey, can you get all I the get books? bookshops as well? Just, just this, the yes, no, no, you can, you can. The previous book I wrote, Emotional Support Through Breast Cancer, um, the ha a handbook, you can also get on um, Amazon. Um, it's, it's, I think I wrote that in 2000, well, it was published in 2013. And, and interestingly, it was highly commended by the British Medical Association, which was quite a coup. So I was pleased about that. And that, that continues to be of interest to people, although um, I don't think it gets as much exposure as it did because it's deemed to be an old book, but it's as relevant as it ever has been. And it's offering support to women, you know, um, after the treatments are over more than anything. There's a little bit for people who've just been diagnosed, but, but the emphasis is on, you know, after, you know, one, two, three years when... People are saying you should be over it. Same kind of thing as I was saying earlier. And in fact, um, you're not over it. So, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people have said that they've felt um, reassured and comforted by that book. So I'm pleased it, it's still there. And then there's also the psychological impact of breast cancer, which again is pretty relevant. But that's, that was the first one I wrote. Um, yeah, which is about, a lot of it's about my experience of going through it, but it's also, it's, it's a mixed genre book because I'm, I'm writing it also as a psychologist and there's a bit about the history of breast cancer. And this. But the difference with the living with the long-term effects of cancer is that it's about all cancers. It's not just breast cancer. What we'll do yeah? is we'll, we'll put um, all the, the links for Thank you. the book in the podcast as Thank well. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Any articles that you have as well, just so people that they want to find more information cool. or get in touch with you, um, they, they know. Yes, please do. It's the reaching out, is the getting in touch. Is um, I like feedback, and uh, I'm happy to have the feedback, even if it's not 100% positive. I don't expect everybody to like every aspect of. I mean, I think that what's missing at the moment is if there are any doctors or anybody in um, you know the medical world listening to this podcast. Um, engage with it the whole point is to get the book out to people who need it and on the basis of the kind of feedback that i've got a lot of people do need it to be honest with you so i, I wouldn't want to sort of get in the way of that but what, what about then on social media or do you have a website as well i do i do have a website which is um cordeliagalgut.co.uk and that has all the on the home page, we've put all the bits and pieces of all the reviews of it. I mean, if anybody wants to review it, anybody listening to this wants, to, and they work for an organisation or something, they want to review it. I mean, the more reviews, the better, really. They're all on the home page and some blogs I've written and stuff like that. So cordeliagalgut.co.uk. I also, I mean, listen, I'm not much of a tweeter. <laughs> but i have i have i have got a twitter account i'm not the best at it at all um i think i i you know but i i do when things are important i consider things are important i say for example there's a new review or whatever i will put it on twitter but i mean i wish i were better at it really no, I don't, i'm not using that. facebook yeah You've better so. better things to be doing than uh, than tweeting or twitching whatever it's called well if it's <laughs> Well, if there's any anybody out there who's who's happy to kind of help and whatever, I'm, I'm happy to be helped because uh, 
you know that's what i need i need an assistant who can help me with the social media stuff and unfortunately publish, there you go anybody out there that wants to help dr cordelia get in touch <laughs> get, <laughs> well get the book get the book out there as much as possible because the whole the whole reason it almost killed me writing it honestly and i'll tell you the the from a psychological point of view um people always say oh it makes you feel it must make you feel so much better writing yeah I said, no it doesn't make me feel better it makes me feel worse quite often because you know like writing a book about recurrence just it just i get in touch with all my own fears about getting more cancer and stuff so it is it was a it was an act of sort of compassion and caring about compassion for uh, towards and and caring about other people who are struggling you know with and beyond cancer that's what it was it's a kind of act, act of love for those people really so have you anything to say to anybody at this moment in time who may be experiencing cancer before we go and have you any advice or suggestions for them well it depends what stage they're at i mean you know when you're going when you've just been diagnosed and you're going through all the treatments most people are on hold and they're just in a numb sort of rabbit court and the headlights like oh i've got to you know i've got to get this out of me and then i've got to get through the treatments and stuff so and that's okay you know i mean i think just put as little pressure on yourself as you possibly can and and try and push push away any kind of negativity and all that rubbish that comes at us you know if you if you're sort of too fat you you cause your own cancer if you you know you if you if you're carrying a few more pounds you cause your own cancer if you if you've done this you cause your own cancer so all that kind of negativity just try and keep it at, at bay and and remember that that most of it is a load of old what's that what's the irish with blarney no blarney. what's it what's blarney. it yeah, yeah. 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 that's my people. irish that's those are my irish roots um uh yeah it's yeah it's a load of rubbish so just don't let anything in that that's sort of you don't need to listen to because believe you me a lot of it's well 99.9 percent .9 of it i i believe is rubbish um and and allow yourself to put down boundaries with people around you who are making demands on you I mean, it's easier said than done you know you're allowed to focus on yourself you're allowed to look after yourself again easier said than done especially if you've got children and and some people's way of looking after themselves will be to spend time with their children etc or you know um as as we move you know as time goes by i mean i i would it's not for me to tell people to speak out about the reality of their lives but certainly all my years of clinical experience as in working with clients as well as my own personal experience and, and just talking to people not in a you know in the consulting room it does seem as though when people find a voice within themselves that they are able to you know give give vent to um and not feel bad about it then they do start to feel empowered you know if you're sitting at home and you're thinking i can't really say how frightened i am of my cancer coming back i can't tell this person i can't tell my partner then maybe psychologically that's not very helpful you know but it's really not for me to say i mean i'm not here to tell people what to do but you're asking me what advice i would give and i don't generally like to give advice but it's just they're just ideas and of course the chapters of the at the end of each chapter of living with long-term effects of cancer i've i've done a summary and in the summary 
I've generally done a bit for those of us living with the long-term effects and also for partners, families, friends, healthcare professionals as well. And in fact, at the end of the book, there's a very hard-hitting set of recommendations for people in health, you know, in healthcare, which I'm sure a lot of people really don't like, but. Um, <laughs> it has to be done. Sometimes reality needs to be told, but uh, yeah. no. Well, I believe, I, I believe obviously everything I've written, I'm not, I hope, I hope I am known for my honesty, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not, and transparency, whether you like it or not, you know, and directness, whether you like it or not um so and and you know i hope i'm you know i'm i'm doing i do what i do for the best of reasons you know i hope <laughs> well that's why you're yeah. on here today you're trying to yeah and thank you, for, so thank you, you for, for the good reasons well i hope so i mean that's why i'm doing it and and good for you that you're you know you're doing these podcasts and i'm sure they help people and um yeah you know uh respect to to you for doing it because oh, my, um, my pleasure thank you very much for uh chatting with me today on aviation aviation zero i'd like to thank you again uh, dr cordelia talgut for uh, taking okay busy schedule so thank you you're, so much. you're very welcome david okay thanks <laughs>